Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Grant Haver, and I want to introduce you to the newest podcast on the DSR Network, Next in Foreign Policy. Every other week, Zoe Weinberg and I talk with new and emerging foreign policy experts about the issues of today and tomorrow. We've covered everything from the war in Ukraine to the impact of pop culture on policy. So if you want to better understand the people and ideas that will be shaping the debate in Washington and around the world for years to come, check us out wherever you find your podcasts. As you've come to rely on Deep State Radio's in-depth expert analysis, we hope that you will consider becoming a member to support our efforts. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content on Tuesdays and Thursdays, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our new Ukraine Daily Brief newsletter, delivered to your inbox each evening. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MARCH2022 to receive 28% off a monthly or annual membership. Thank you. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, coming to you today from Cambridge, Massachusetts. I am very pleased to be joined today by Amy Ziegert, who is the author of a new book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. Amy is a scholar in these areas and is at Stanford University. You know, I think this book is exceptionally timely and fascinating, debunks myths and talks about some of the interesting challenges of the future. So welcome, Amy. Thank you. David, thank you so much for having me. It's good to see you on Zoom. Well, likewise. And of course, you know, we have an audience in this podcast of several tens of thousands of foreign policy and national security nerds. So they will eat this up. And I am sure that when they get the chance to uh, read this book, they will do so well received for all the good reasons a book could be. But I think timely also, because as we've seen in the context of this war in Ukraine, intelligence has played a vital role. Clearly, as is always the case with intelligence, we haven't seen the entirety of the role. But we have seen some creative use of intelligence. The United States became aware that Russia was thinking about doing this several months ago, began planning several months ago. And then as Russia moved closer and closer to actually following through on this plan, United States began to release the intelligence, almost weaponize the intelligence as a way of preparing the world, not just for what Russia was going to do, but how Russia was going to sell it as a way of sort of diffusing disinformation, which is a 
you know, a, a key component of, of how Russia tackles these things. How have you seen it? Do you see it as really as many people have spoken of it as a real innovation? How do you how do you see it? I think it is a real innovation. And I think in many ways, it's the poster child for many of the trends that I write about in the book. We see the trends of emerging technology. We see the use of openly available information. We see that intelligence customers aren't just people with security clearances anymore. And so what I think the Biden administration has done is used intelligence to inoculate the world against disinformation coming from the Kremlin. So the the essence of the revelation of intelligence was don't believe the lies you're about to be told by Vladimir Putin. But I also think that the use of intelligence served two other purposes. One was to impose friction on Putin. This is right out of Cyber Command's playbook, which is we want to make it harder for the adversary to operate. The more he's worried about his own systems, his own sources, how do the allies know what they know, the more he's off his front foot. And then the third use, I think, of intelligence is a very clever removal of the fig leaf. So you see countries like Switzerland signing on to sanctions. You see China agonizing a little bit, being backed into a corner. And that's because the revelation of intelligence, not just about what Russia is doing, but what the Chinese knew about what the Russians were doing, is forcing the Chinese to have to take a stand or take a side. They can't assist on the sly like it used to be in those sort of covert action days. They're forced to have to deal with the real narrative, not the fig leaf. And I think this is all pretty new. Yeah, well, in fact, with the Chinese, Bill Burns, the CIA director, stood up a couple of weeks ago and he said the Chinese were surprised by how this came down. Xi was not briefed on it. And they're taken aback by, you know, the Russian brutality and so forth. Well, you know, Xi Jinping didn't call up Bill Burns and say, I'm surprised. So this was, you know, another example where there was Bill Burns in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee revealing a little bit of intelligence to sort of put not only Xi on his back foot, but to send a message to the Russians that they may not have been getting from the Chinese. Absolutely. And so you see this very strategic use of not just secrecy, but openness. And so this question of when do you reveal and when do you conceal is changing. And it's changing in part because the Biden administration is using it differently. It's changing in part because we're in a world of cyber-enabled information warfare. And it's changing in part because technology makes it possible. So all of these revelations are now also being validated by open source intelligence, right? So you pick up the newspaper and you see Maxar imagery of troop movements around Ukraine. So uh, seeing is believing in many cases, and it's not just what government intelligence agencies are saying, it's what open source intelligence non-governmental actors are saying too. I mean, there are other examples, and I'm not going to dwell on this because I want to talk a little bit about the book. But you know, on the one hand, while there is clearly work being done behind the scenes by the intelligence community, one of the things that we expected was kind of big cyber onslaught into Ukraine. And it didn't happen. And there are some inclina- in indications that one of the reasons that it didn't happen was that the Ukrainians were prepared for what the Russians were going to do and were able to offset it. Another area, which is related to what you were just talking about, is that the Russians don't apparently seem to be using encrypted communications. And so so there, there, there's a lot of intercepting of cell phone traffic 
because the Russians are using cell phones to talk to each other. And then that gets shared. So that's just another dimension of what's available by open source. You know, it's, it's the question about cyber attacks is a really interesting one. And it's a question I've put to a number of current and former senior officials over the past few weeks. And I think what we're seeing play out, you can see this in testimony before Congress and public comments by General Nakasone, the head of Cyber Command, by Ann Neuberger, Deputy National Security Advisor, is exactly what you said, David, which is that the Russians have been trying some things, but that we've been helping the Ukrainians with their defense, unclear what more, if anything, Cyber Command has been doing on the offensive side. So they have tried, maybe not as much as we would have expected, but that Cyber Command was pretty forward-leaning and helping the Ukrainians in this first few weeks, in any case. Obviously, there have been concerns that the worst of cyber is yet to come with respect both to Ukraine and to the rest of the world, what the Russians may do. So it's a work in progress, to be sure. Well, you know, and that gets to one of what I think is is the core issues that you deal with in the book, and, and frankly, one of the core issues that exists in intelligence. And let me sketch it out in a kind of a broad way as somebody who's written a lot about the national security community, but also for a while ran an open source intelligence company with a bunch of people who were from the intel community. In fact, I'll never forget going in at one point and giving a briefing about open source intelligence to a bunch of people at PACOM, Pacific Command, and, and I had a picture on the screen of a North Korean missile launcher. And uh, Admiral walked in the room and said, this is unclassified briefing. You have to take that picture down. And I said, well, this is a picture. This is an open source picture. I, he said, I don't care. Take it down. You know." And it captured a bunch of things for me. And so there, there's this kind of fundamental tension. And it's related to a few things. And I'm not going to go on and on, but just a couple of things. One is, in the U.S. intelligence community right now, you tend to only value closed source intelligence. If it's not closed source, you don't value it. But on the other hand, I've talked to people, I remember talking to Tony Zinni when he was the commanding general of CENTCOM, and he had done a study of all the intelligence he was getting. And of the intelligence he was getting, 80% was available via open sources. And of the remaining 20%, 80% was discoverable if you knew what you were looking for. So only 4% of the classified stuff was actually unique. So that was one problem. Another problem is that the intelligence gathering and distribution system within the US government is the only information system I know of that's designed to serve the creator of information and not the user of information. So, you know, the creator of information comes up with this stuff, but the user may not be able to get it. It, it only goes up through silos. They can't search for it if they don't have the right. So in other words, it's it's not user-friendly. And you know, you would think there would be an opportunity in the current era to make every policymaker smarter by giving them access to more. But we don't do that. In part, we don't do that because of what I said before, which is we value closed source information, classified information much more. And we have way, way, way too, too much of it. And then, of course, we're going through other technological transformations, all of which every single one we want to adopt is impeded by these other factors, the culture, what we value, how we share it, and so forth. And the question is, how do you get what is a 
pretty good 1990s information system within the intelligence community up to 21st century speed. Well, you've laid out so well a number of these issues, David. The first is this paradox. So open source, as you point out, has always been a large part of intelligence products. Estimates in the Cold War were exactly what you heard from Zinni, about 80% in a typical intelligence report is from publicly available information or discoverable information. And yet at the same time open source has played this role, it's discounted inside the intelligence community. And so one former senior official, intelligence official said, and for my research, something I never forgot, he said, you know, inside the IC, in the the community, we think if a piece of information costs a trillion dollars to get, it must be worth a trillion dollars. And that's the problem. It's one of the key problems. It's secret sort of reign supreme still in these agencies. And so, but open source, of course, is the name of the game, especially today when it comes to insight. And so how does the community then realize the benefits of the open source ecosystem, not just the information, and mitigate the risks? It's one of many challenges that I lay out in the book. And I think it's really important to think about drivers of challenges. So open source is one challenge. Adopting technology inside the community to understand the world is another. But all of these things are being driven by the convergence of emerging technologies. We've never had so many technologies changing so much so fast. The internet, AI, quantum, commercial satellite imagery, synthetic biology, and more. And so what I argue in the book is that as we think about emerging technology in this moment of convergence, it's driving five challenges for intelligence agencies. We talked about one of them, more competitors in the open source world. Second challenge, which we alluded to with the Russia-Ukraine discussion, more customers, right? More people need intelligence who don't have security clearances. Voters need intelligence about election interference. Tech leaders need intelligence. Critical infrastructure leaders need intelligence. Foreign publics need intelligence. But then we have three other mores that are challenging the intelligence community driven by technology. More threats driven by technology through cyberspace. More speed. Intelligence has to move faster at the speed of relevance. And that's all accelerating with all of these other capabilities in social media and the like. And then there's more data, which is why we need so much to bring in analytic tools like AI to help make sense of the crushing amount of data that analysts are facing today. So it's not just one problem driven by new technology, it's five. I think the challenge is even more complicated than we might think. Yeah. And, you know, when you deal with any operational area, you run up against it. You know, I just finished a book in which I was sort of looking at different challenges that was faced during the Trump administration. And, you know, one of them was election security. And, you know, the big question was, well, we've got all this information, what the Russians are going to do. How do I give it to a local official? And you, you can't secure critical infrastructure against state actor risk or non-state actor risk unless you get the intelligence to that that systems administrator at Duke Energy who, you know, will never have clearance and shouldn't have clearance, right? And that means that agencies have to think from the beginning about how to produce for the open, 
How do you have tradecraft and products that you can get out quickly to the Duke energy person or to the local administrator? And that, as you know, is an unnatural act for these agencies. They spent their decades focusing on producing products in the classified domain. So this is a real sea change. And we see movement in this direction. You know, NSA now has public service announcements about cyber threats and about election interference. So, you know, times are changing when the NSA is going public with things. Uh, The CIA is on Twitter. That's an indicator the world is changing, but it's not changing fast enough. At one point, having been in the government in the 1990s, gave me some insight. I feel at this point, it gives me no insight because, you know, the, the, the kind of, you know, I had a high level clearance and the kind of thing that I saw with my high level clearance is now all available via commercial satellites and, 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 and some, of the, some of these other things. But another area that we had a big problem with was gathering intelligence on private sector actors, which happens periodically. But I remember once a CI director blowing up at a group of cabinet officials saying, I'm not going to take the risk of gathering this private sector intelligence because it's too easily leaked. Well, you can't, I mean, in cyber, a substantial portion of the risk comes from the private sector and a substantial portion of the defense comes from the private sector. And if that's going to be a great new battlefield, it requires a complete change culturally. I think, David, you put your finger on something that is pervasive, not only in the IC, but in the Defense Department too, which is how we assess risk. What I hear all the time is, oh, we don't want to do that because there's a risk of doing that, whether it's buying technology from a small company in Silicon Valley. We don't want to take the risk. What if it doesn't work as we think it will? And the reality is we're now in a world where the risk of doing nothing is often more significant than the risk of doing anything. And so we have to think about inaction raises its own level of risk. And that is a really different way of thinking, I think, for a lot of people inside the government. Not everybody, but I hear these conversations. I cannot tell you how often about, well, we don't want to do that because that would be risky. And just moving back to the Ukraine situation, I think what's really notable here Clearly, there's a risk when you release intelligence that you may compromise your sources and methods. And in this case, about a very important crisis as it's unfolding. But the administration, to its credit, weighed the risk of keeping that information against the risk of revealing that information and came down with a gutsy decision to release the information. And I think that's a really important change. Yeah, I don't think people really fully realize how contrary to the native impulses of most people in the intelligence community it is. And that, you know, they may just take it for granted. But, you know, at a certain point in this, the United States said, Vladimir Putin has made the decision to do the following, which implied that the United States had intelligence on what was going on at the highest level in the innermost circles of the Russian government, including the Russian president. And that would be like the crown jewel of crown jewels when it comes to the kind of intelligence you don't release. And yet they did it. It's extraordinary that they did it. But if you're ever going to use intelligence and make it public, Russian invasion 
of a sovereign democratic nation at the heart of Europe remaking the global international order in a very negative direction, that's the time to do it. Well, it must have made things real uncomfortable about that around that very, very long table that Vladimir Putin has been meeting with people. Let's skip to another dimension of this, you know, in each of these sort of five areas that you've talked about, and that is the avalanche of, of data. The idea is that every device on the Internet of Things is gathering data. The entire economy of the world is based on gathering data. Like, is, you know, at some point in the not too distant future, is the carton of milk in your refrigerator full or not? And so your refrigerator is gathering data every, you know, your phone is getting everything, right? So we have massive amounts of data on everybody all the time, phone data and so on and so forth. Theoretically, there's a huge value in having access to all of this data. If you can make any sense of it at all, do we hit a point at which there's too much intelligence to make any sense of it? Well, I think we have the situation now where there's too much and not enough, both. So you think about when I when I hear you talk about the avalanche of data and how you know our milk curtain is it could be a smart device. I think about what adversaries can do, piecing together different bits of data from different sources and how our data can be used to generate information we had no idea it could be used for. So Fitbits revealing military installations, for example, or bar apps of where military uh, folks like to go to drink their beer, revealing patterns of behavior. Our DNA data on Ancestry.com and sites like that being used to find criminals. So we think we know what our data can do, and we don't, because it's the harnessing of different sets of data put together that can be used in novel ways. Now, in the hands of our adversaries, that's pretty alarming. So why did China hack OPM and steal security clearance records of 22 million Americans? Well, they also hacked Anthem, and they also hacked Marriott. And what are they trying to do? Presumably, marry those data sets to better understand travel behavior and health histories, which could enable recruitment or coercion of Americans and our allies. So it's that collecting of the haystacks can generate real insights. Now, it's also really hard to do. Are we, do we have too much data? Well, yes, we also have too much data. And so we have to figure out how to find those proverbial needles and haystacks in a more effective way. And that's where AI comes in to help Free up the human analysts to do the kinds of tasks that humans do better than machines, creative thinking, hypothesis generation, thinking about adversary intentions. So they're not spending all their time going through thousands and thousands of images of surface-to-air missile sites that that an algorithm can actually do much faster than a human. So we need to use those machines to reduce the workload on the human. And, you know, just to give a sense of this, you know, you listed a bunch of things the Chinese hack, but of course... The Chinese government has has decided that they want to gather the DNA information on everybody in China. Well, that's a database. That's a database that gives you an insight into each individual in China. That could be useful. Or it could be an ocean full of droplets, you know. And, and so the question is, you know, how do you 
make the most use of that. Now, one of the ways that it seems most likely that it'll get made use of, particularly in in wartime, is not just the application of artificial intelligence to sort through it, but the disintermediation of human factors. So, you know, you have swarms of drones flying into a battlefield, battle space, and every drone is not just potential attack mechanism. It's an information gatherer. And the swarms of drones have artificial intelligence that say, if this target is available, go after it. If it's not available, go after this other target. And of course, we're going to know where individual leaders are at any given moment. You're going to have access to information on everybody at any, you know, right now there's this mystery about the Russian government where the defense minister seems to be missing. He's got a stomach bug or something. But the point is, he's missing to you and me. He's not missing to somebody else. Somebody knows exactly where he is and is the only way to be able to take care of this intelligence. It is to disintermediate people and let machines make certain kinds of choices about who to kill, who not to kill, who to track, who not to track, what to prioritize. I mean, this is such a huge set of issues about what is possible, what is effective, and what is ethical. And this is, as you know, the, the source of many conversations about what's the role of the human and what's the role of the machine. I think I'm always betting that humans can hide better than machines can seek. We saw this with Osama bin Laden. We saw this with Saddam Hussein. Even with all the sensors in the world, it's still hard to find a determined person who wants to hide from surveillance and wants to hide from being caught. But that said, we are entering a world where autonomous technologies are going to be pivotal, not just to war fighting and not just to conflict, but to understanding what's happening. I've done a lot of research on drones and I've I've polled foreign military officers about what kinds of threats they find credible. And I think there are real opportunities for unmanned systems to coerce without the use of force, to reassure when there's a risk of miscalculation. So what's going on on the border? You can send unmanned systems and not risk people, uh, not risk life. It's a less escalatory way of dealing with conflict. But there's no question in my mind that unmanned systems are going to play a large role in the future. In the United States, in any case, at the behest of the human, right? So when we think about the loyal wingman concept for the Air Force, it's a human in the cockpit, but with drones that are the loyal wingman to extend the capabilities of that one fighter pilot. And so that's where I think we're moving. And I think there's some real benefits to doing that. But there's nothing that substitutes for that human intelligence on the ground about what someone's intentions are and where they're hiding and whether they actually have a stomach bug or not. It's, it's true. Although to the, you know, to the extent that one can ever take a sensor and replace the human with a sensor, it's lower risk. And to the extent to which the sensor becomes a nano sensor instead of something more easily identifiable it's lower risk. There are a lot of reasons to take humans out of the equation. There are. On the other hand, I'm going to be a little contrarian here. Some secrets are better off for everyone staying secret and not enabling sensors 
to understand what's happening. So the classic example here is second strike nuclear forces on submarines, right? So imagine we have a world of sensors underwater where we can track every nuclear submarine in the world and our adversaries can too. We would all be worse off because there's an increasing temptation, an increasing reward to striking first with nuclear weapons if you can't assure you have a second strike that will survive a first hit. And so you can imagine opportunities for potential agreements about keeping the secret secret rather than revealing everything that we know, because it's more stabilizing to do that. So I do worry about crisis escalation in this world of transparency, also with open source providers. So I've, I've been asking colleagues of mine, imagine if there were a Cuban missile crisis playing out on Twitter today where you have open source intelligence providers showing information in real time about Soviet nuclear missile installations in Cuba. What we know from history is that the two things that were pivotal to solving the actual crisis were not transparency. It was not speed. It was secrecy so that the Soviets and the Americans could negotiate a missile swap. And it was time, time for John F. Kennedy to think without the public pressure of having to do something. So one of my chief concerns about this emerging world of open source intelligence is that crises will become harder to manage because leaders are backed into a corner and they don't have secrecy to compromise and time to think. One of the other things that uh, was vital in the Cuban Missile Crisis was ignorance. Because had we known that the Russians had deployed nuclear weapons already to Cuba, we probably would have handled it in a very different way. But we, as it, we didn't know, right? You know, we, it turned out we didn't know. And I think the point about this incredible, I mean, following this war on open source intelligence sites has been fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And people are giving you casualty totals and movements of troops and intercepting communications. And of course, you know, <laughs> There's a whole giant industry telling people where every plane in the world is at any given moment. And now every super yacht, I didn't even know I was interested in where every super yacht is, but now we know. And it's all available, you know, on your cell phone all day long. So that does change the equation. I guess my final question here, because I could go on and on about this. I find this stuff so fascinating. The book is so fascinating. And, and the work you're doing is so fascinating. But the final question is, you know, how are we doing? This administration, fortunately, believes in science. That's different from the last administration. It's got a director of national intelligence who's not only an intelligence professional, which is a step ahead of the last administration, but, but she's a scientist. She actually understands this stuff. And, um, you know, I've noticed, for example, the the sort of elevation of the the, the role of, of cyber in the planning of this and Anne Newberger going over and briefing NATO and, you know, creating levels of coordination around cyber that have never existed before. So those seem like encouraging things to me. But your book describes big hurdles. Are we grappling with those? I think we are. And I would agree with you that the people and the steps taken in this administration are a big step forward, big step forward on cyber, big step forward on intelligence, big step forward on emerging technologies. But in my research, what I found is the question isn't whether 
agencies are changing. The question is whether they're changing fast enough to keep pace with the external threat environment. And the answer is no, we are not changing fast enough. And so what I find and what I argue in the book, as you know, is that this is an adapt or fail moment for our intelligence community. I think one as important as 9-11, that with the emerging technologies that we're seeing, a little bit of organizational change, a little more capability in different areas is not not gonna cut it. And what I think we need is a major new agency dedicated to open source intelligence. If we really think that this is the name of the game for insight, and I believe it is for the future, we are losing our relative intelligence edge because intelligence isn't just for governments anymore. And superpower governments have a relative decline in our capabilities versus the rest of the world. Just look at what you can get from commercial satellites versus spy satellites. The resolution, the capabilities, the revisit rates, how many times uh, a satellite constellation can go over the same place on Earth multiple times a day. They are extraordinary capabilities that can be put in the hands of anyone. And so for our intelligence community to adapt fast enough, we need a dedicated open source agency that does care more about open source information than secrets, and that also can provide a recruitment bed for talent. So we haven't talked about the most important element in intelligence, which is people. And we are in desperate need of more STEM talent, like Avril Haynes, a physicist by training, to go into these agencies for some period of time, maybe not for their whole lives. And I think we need an open source agency to enable to drive that recruitment effort and technology tools to experiment with to use them as a test bed for innovation. So we're moving forward, but not nearly fast enough and fully enough to deal with the emerging landscape that we face. You know, so once upon a time in my life, around about the year 2000, I thought, oh, this technology is really cool. Open source is really cool. If I got together some intelligence professionals and we captured this stuff on open source, we could answer a question, any question anybody had. And I was you know, it was everybody's side. And I had all these people who worked with me and many of whom have gone on to big high government roles or came from very high government roles. And I was wrong about two things. People don't want to know the answer. The problem people have is asking the question, what is the question to ask? That was, you know, fundamental. But the other thing that I was kind of wrong about was that I could stay ahead of the technological change. And two years after, three years after I started this, Google was invented. And you know, people were able to do all this fancy stuff on Google. And my point is not that I'm an idiot, but although our listeners know that already, my point is that the talent issue is somewhat bigger than, than just how do you attract people into the intelligence business. The smartest people in these new areas of technology are always going to go to technology companies. They're going to get paid many, many times more to work for them. You sit there at Stanford and, you know, the, you know, you go to a, you know, the Starbucks in, in Palo Alto and everybody's talking about their IPO, you know, it's, you, you know, you buy a garage, it costs $4 million. And this is a problem because people will say, well, Palantir knows more than the U S government, or people will say company X is where the real brains are here on these technology issues. And so 
not only do you need the open source cultural change, information system change, but somehow you've got to figure out a way to crack the code of how do you have a public-private partnership in what used to be the most private area of the U.S. government? I, I wish I had an easy solution, but I guess I don't think that the best tech talent always goes to industry. I think they're recruitable. So I did a focus group with a colleague of mine, a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force a few years ago, and we went to Stanford undergraduates. Computer science is the number one major at Stanford by an order of magnitude. And so we decided to hold a focus group. He's a cyber officer. And we asked computer science students who said they would never in a million years want to work for the U.S. government to participate in this focus group. I lured them with the promise of food, because as I've learned at Stanford, undergraduates will tell you anything for a piece of pizza. So that was my strategy. So we had this focus group. with Same is true for me, by the way, still. It's true for most people, actually. (laughs) Free food goes a long way. And so we started off, they said, you know, we would never work for the government. We have ethical considerations. We want to have autonomy with our decisions, et cetera, et cetera. And so my friend, Kevin Child, said, well, what if I told you that you could put your skills to work and you could help us find Osama bin Laden? And they said, well, I'd sign up for that. He said, what if I told you that you could work with me and do things that would get you arrested anywhere else, but will get you a medal? if you work for me. And they said, well, I'd sign up for that too. So what I find is really driving tech talent today is the desire for impact. And that desire for impact can be met in the government, but we do a really bad job of communicating that, I think, from the government. And and the pain points to going in and out of government are too numerous and too high. So it's a solvable problem. It takes a lot of effort to do it. But I also think the goal isn't, as you point out, to recruit people just to go into the government. It's not to recruit lifers. It's to generate ambassadors, people to go back and forth who speak both suit and hoodie and who can build that bridge between the private sector and the public sector. Because that partnership that you talked about requires trust and it requires people who understand the cultures and the incentives and the institutions in both areas. And there aren't enough people who can bridge that divide. Well, that's very optimistic. The book is important. These subjects are important. People will acknowledge that on the face, but but I don't think people fully understand that the United States government is an information system and that what it does is only as good as the information it gets and its ability to synthesize, process, and act properly on that information. And we've got lots of mechanisms in the government that are pretty good at doing. And yet the the eyes and the ears of the information system, a big chunk of the brain of the information system, is off limits for most people to discuss and was designed for a different era in a different way. And so it's not when you talk about spies, lies, and algorithms, it's not the realm of the IC, James Bond, some little subset or silo. It's the realm of what do you put in the brain of every policymaker? 
and you know, that's how to, how does it work? You know, and when I wrote about the NSC, which I've done several times, but when the NSC was established in 1947, the core idea was how do we get the intel to the people who are going to be able to act on that intel? How do we create a kind of a, a centralized system? And how can they ask for what they want? So, and that was easy enough. And, and, you know, the first X number of years it was done, you could put all the people in a room who were critical to this process. And now we're in a whole different place. And so this book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence, is not just about the intelligence community. It's about the intelligence of the United States government. It's about how that information system ultimately evolves. And I think it's a real landmark in that regard. And I, and I think it's really important for anybody who understands where we're going here to think about these issues. And, and, and I think if they read your book and follow the other stuff you do, they will be better off in that regard. So thank you, Amy, for joining us. Thank you, David, for having me. And I encourage everybody to get the book. And I also, you know, encourage everybody to keep following the other stuff we do on a daily basis, following what's going on in Ukraine and elsewhere, as we will do again tomorrow. And for information on that, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And if you want to become a member and get the full benefit of everything we're doing, click on membership. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Amy. And uh, we'll be back again with more tomorrow. Bye-bye.